Hello, Marvelites! Welcome to another episode of This Week in Marvel. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Marvel's Agent M, joined by... And I'm Blake Garrison. We have the pleasure of sitting with... Introduce yourself, oh. sir. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm from Joe Satriani, and as we've just discovered, I am from Long Island, too. Yeah, that's, that's right. a, it's a wonderful bit of kismet, uh, talking about our shared uh, beginnings that's right. uh, on the island, and... For me, and I've talked about this on a bunch of podcasts that I've been on and done and stuff, it's like music was so important for me on Long Island. I was involved, I grew up in in the uh, 90s, and we had a very robust uh, hardcore and punk rock music scene on Long Island at that point. And that really, like, taught me business. It taught me, you know, like, how to do uh, social networking, how to network in real life uh, I actually learned about web design and all this other stuff just from those couple those formative years so music in Long Island so important that's cool yeah yeah it's funny that the era that I grew up in uh, they you could still get into a bar at 18 which meant at 16 <laughs> I could pass to get in and to get gigs so I did a lot of playing yeah. in, co- in cover bands playing blues and rock mm-hmm. and cover bands all over the island and as I said before, I wasn't going to mention the stories, but I did get in a lot of trouble all over Long Island. <laughs> you mentioned a street, a highway, or whatever, and, I've, and there's a story there that shouldn't be told. But um, great place to grow up. It was a vibrant scene for, for music. And, uh, and boy, one of my neighbors was Steve I, and, <laughs> and little did I know it, John Petrucci was growing up a couple of miles away, and there's quite a few guitar players that came out of the island it's something in the water yeah that's great yeah. uh how did you get involved with you know what, what made you pick up a guitar as opposed to drums or actually i did pick up the drums i yeah. started out as a drummer at age nine and uh didn't didn't go so well i mean i, I worked really hard and i maybe two or three years uh took lessons uh a guy a name i knew as mr patricus used to come over and play great jazz drummer and would try to teach me but I think even at a young age, I knew that there was something that was not going to happen. You know, <laughs> something about coordination of all four limbs was, you know, eluding me. Uh, one of my older sisters, Marion, played acoustic guitar, and she wrote uh, her own folk music and sang it at school and stuff like that. And uh, so I started to get used to the idea that the guitar was a lot would work more in a family of seven because you could go to the corner of a house or something and quietly strum and be reflective, <laughs> whereas every time I played, everyone was yelling, like, shut up, you know? <laughs> so uh, I started to drift towards thinking, math guitar might be the thing. I tried some chords, and then uh, I was becoming uh, a Hendrix fanatic at the time. It was just music, really, my older siblings were bringing home all the time. Mm-hmm. I was kind of too young to be part of that scene, but I kind of lived vicariously through their record collection and and what was happening, what they were going through in the late 60s. Um, and when Hendrix died, it devastated me. And, and that day, I quit the football team. I went home and announced at the dinner table, I am going to be an electric guitar player. And um, that's how it all started. At what age were you at that point? 14. 14. And, yeah. and like that is, that's some ballsy move right there, <laughs> sticking to your guns. Yeah, well, I, it, you know, I was number five. So my parents were like, okay, whatever, we've had it with these kids, you know. They're crazy ideas. They lived through, their, you know, my older siblings going through the 60s and all the changes that went on in society. Sure. So any kid uh, in my position really got off easy because the parents had been beaten down by the other four siblings, you know. <laughs> so I got a lot of good support and, um, 
and, and it was great. So it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. So, all right, 14, you declare you will be uh, an electric guitar master. At what point do you actually go, I, this, is, this is happening, this is awesome? Well, <clears throat> that's a good question. Uh, I think the first, within a few months, I joined this band, and um, I think we played... Let me think. That's September. Blah, blah, blah. Maybe it's eight months or seven months later. Uh, I played my first show at a high school dance, you know, in the gymnasium, mm-hmm. in the Car Place High School. And uh, I, I know I was terrified. There's a photo of me with my back to the audience, you know, that kind of thing. But I remember feeling. That's all I remember from that show was just a feeling I had inside that this was the place that I wanted to be always. This was the coolest place in the world. I just had to figure out how can I be doing this all the time, you know. Um, but I was still struggling. I was not a gifted player, you know, that could just, like, play anything. It hurt, you know, while I was playing, after I played, and I still couldn't figure out why do I suck and everybody else sounds so much better. And every time I put on a record, I didn't know what I was hearing. I was mm-hmm. just like, well, that's so good. How do they get there? <laughs> um, so it was a struggle. It started that. But I've always liked the struggles, I guess. Ah. Fell in love with the idea of pursuing music and and musical excellence so uh it i can't say it never bothered me but it i enjoyed the struggle i guess is the only way to put it i I, you'd have to because if you know i i for one i picked up a guitar i tried and i just i you know i couldn't get it like it just didn't click for me and then i was like all right i'll try something else i didn't have that that thing that stuck with me to keep to keep at it so you do i i do believe that you have to meet the instrument that likes you and in my experience being a failed drummer was that I had all the passion and the music, but that, you know, it didn't work. And then when I went to guitar, it was just as hard, but every day there was just a little incremental step forward. Yeah. And I, I realized this instrument likes me a little more than the drums. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a path there, you know, there's hope, yeah. light at the end of the tunnel kind of thing. Yeah, and, and I, to be honest, I mean, like, I'm amazed by musicians. My wife, she plays the flute and she plays bass. And she's she's great at bass. She's amazing with the flute. Like she's years of training. And when she's playing them, she's just sort of like doing her thing. I'm like, how? How, like, <laughs> how does how does that happen? Wow. It's fascinating. I, I love it. It's a gift. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, well, were you, growing up, were you a Marvel Comics fan? <laughs> we were just talking about that. Yeah. How I grew up in a family where comic books were frowned upon, mm. so they were never even in the house. And I was always told, no, here's a book, you know. I remember getting, like, James Baldwin to read when I was like, I don't want to read this. Well, who is this guy, you know? <laughs> don't read any comic books, you know. Um, they let me read, uh, you know, The Godfather before they <laughs> let me bring a comic book home. So I never really got into it. My mm-hmm. friends had them. They loved them, and they devoured them. But uh, as soon as I started uh, getting into music, it, all of my resources went towards strings and records mm-hmm. you know that was the thing so uh, even if I was getting into comic books I wouldn't put my money into it you know what I mean because <laughs> I had a limited amount of resources sure. um, the funny story about how I got involved with the comic books though is is really almost unbelievable it's just it's one of those funny set of connections that is really hard to imagine that it actually happened uh, but I can tell you that after all those years you fast forward to when I'm almost 30 and I'm about to put out this record with Norrin Rat on the cover and but the record is not called Surfing with the Alien the record is called Lords of Karma 
And uh, as we were talking about earlier, I, I'd given this interview to a, a British reviewer. It was my first interview. And uh, the guy loved all the music, and then he said, it's really too bad about the title. He says, I don't know why musicians are always, you know, trying to sound extra mystical and, you know, doing, you know, borrowing from Indian mysticism and whatever. And, and it had nothing to do with that. So I was kind of offended, but I thought, you know, uh, I don't want to put people off with a title. I just want them to like the music on here. Sure. So... Uh, I hung up and I, I looked over those titles. And I'm thinking I got to find something that lets people know I have a sense of humor. I don't take myself seriously. This is just music that I'm interested in. And uh, I called up the label and asked them if they had printed anything up yet or we were ready to. Could we change it? You know? Sure. Um, we had, we Before had you go, go forward, this is your second record. It would have been my second. Right. It would have been the first one that's produced by Relativity Records. Okay. Uh, which was at that time was a subsidiary subsidiary of important record distributors, which they had a small office building out in Jamaica, and um, uh, the first record I'd done on my own label, and they had done like a P and D deal. So um, anyway, uh, I call the office. The guy who answers the phone is this six foot four guy who's got long platinum blonde hair and I'm talking to him about it and I said well, how about we call it Surfing with the Alien everyone no one's going to hate that title it's a funny title and he said well we should put my namesake on the cover and he, he said the Silver Surfer and I said what's a Silver Surfer <laughs> I had no idea what he was talking about and he of course was more like what's a Silver Surfer are you kidding me <laughs> so he goes I'm going to send you something and it took a while because we weren't FedExing and there was no email or anything uh, but I get these. The he had all of the originals, and he sent me the first two. And he said, "Boy, if we could get, you know, if you like the image, then maybe we can get the the cover of the very first issue uh, of him being born out of the hand." You know, and of course, this is like I don't know what you're talking about. I just love it. I have to fill you in on something, which is in my contract. It stated that I would not allow the the label to put images that were negative, evil, satanic, or anything. Because sure. they, they were making a lot of money putting out really great records that had really horrible uh, <laughs> album covers, you know. And that was a different generation. It was sure. the younger generation. They had a label called Combat, and it was just yeah. all, you know, shock stuff. Mm -hmm. But I said, that's not, I'm never going to do that, <laughs> right? So when this came, I looked at it, and I thought, well, this is great. This is this is something that's so powerful, it's so beautifully done, and yet it's completely positive. And, uh, and of course, I wanted something to be very compelling. Uh, so I said, well, how would we go about this? And he, apparently, I don't know if he was lying, but he said, I know the people at Marvel. I live right down the block from them. So he said, I'll call you back. And he must have set up the meeting because uh, they, he dragged the president and my A&R guy down there from the label. Mm -hmm. And they, I think it was a $5,000 license for like 10 years or 15 years, I don't know. It was because the, the character was kind of dead in the water at the moment. Yeah. You, know, you weren't really doing anything with it. What year was this? 80... 87. Okay. This would have been late, uh, mid-87. Okay, yeah, it would have been just a couple years before his, like, rebirth. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, and and boy, then after that, everyone kept thinking that, you know, I was really into comics. <laughs> and, and uh, of course, I had to explain to them... You know, sadly, no, you know, I'm just like this new guy on the scene. <laughs> uh, and the story's too long to tell over and over again to people how I got introduced to it. So. Sure. But a afterwards, did you did you ever 
you know, like sort of look in on and be like, oh, I want to see what, what's going on? Or is it just sort of like, yeah, this is part of my oeuvre? No, of course I got into it. I yeah. had to because yeah. I thought if I'm going to put this on this record that I think uh, that it would be the last one that they'd let me make. I really did. You know, you have to remember back then, instrumental rock was not a genre. When you said it, sure. people would say, what's that? Mm. You know, And so going into handing over that record to the label, my co-producer, John Coonaberti, and I thought, this is the last record anyone will ever give us money to make. This is it. <laughs> We've finally done it. You know what I mean? So, And we, we had, like, doubled the budget. They, I mean, they had only given us $13,000 to make this record, which was ridiculous, especially in the days of tape. And no, there was no home recording. You yeah. had to go to a studio. And so uh, every minute cost a lot of money. And um, I had somehow stretched it out to about 29000 so they were very upset. <laughs> And there was another 15000 in that budget that was just me bartering for studio time, working for a Blue Oyster Cult and a few other bands that were making records in the building. And I'd, I'd do hour-for-hour hour session work, and then they'd pay me back with studio time so I could finish mixing wow. or putting a solo on. So that record got done just like, you know, stitched together with spare thread and over budget, and uh, it was <laughs> it was pretty intense. So... <laughs> When uh, when it finally came out and we found this amazing image to to go with the music, I I said I want to read this stuff cover to cover to see what it's really all about, and I, I was every time I'd finish an issue I'd say how did I not know about this? <laughs> yeah. How come no one who knew me would say, man, you got to read this, you would like it. Yeah, yeah, especially Silver Surfer. He's got that like the the calmness to him, the the zen like you know behavior, the peace, but you know like the conflict and everything. I yeah. think yeah, it just. Such a great character. And the power, and he's on a surfboard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it got spooky, like, when I started to lose my hair, and I decided one, one afternoon while jogging around San Francisco that it was pathetic, you know, just trying to come up with a hairstyle. I thought, you know, my relatives just used to sh- shave their heads, so that I sh- that's what I should do, right? So just fall into the Satriani line, right? <laughs> so I, I, I bought some clippers, and I shaved half of my head, and then... <laughs> Surprise my family. You know. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, the next time I started to go go out on tour and I had the shaved head, um, it actually was not entirely shaved. I had about a couple of millimeters, right? So I still wasn't totally going for it. And I was on tour in Europe and we were playing in Portugal before, uh, I think we were opening up for ACDC. And I was so tired. I remember we pulled into the, the hotel and just enough time to take a shower and get off to the venue and I started shaving my head and I wasn't thinking about the clip that you put on, you know, for the and I had shaved it all the way down to the skin before I, half of my head again. And I was like, I can't believe I did this not on purpose, you know. <laughs> so I went to that gig and the reaction from everybody was pretty profound. They thought I was doing it on purpose to be more like the silver surfer. So uh, life imitates art. <laughs> things, things have a way of working out. Yeah, I still can't surf, by the way. <laughs> that somehow is uh, magically... it's time for lessons. <laughs> Didn't you mention too that you were in? You got you were put inside of a comic as well. Since then, or yes, um, you know, if we go back to uh, the release of the record in in uh, October of '87, um, I was still giving guitar lessons at the time when I was living in Berkeley, California. One of my students was. Uh, one of the artists who worked at the local Tower Records, and the record stores were still a big concern, especially Tower Records. They were known, especially that branch, uh, uh, for having outrageous art displays of all their artists. 
So Zach Wilson, my student, decided to do a complete store-to-store, wall-to-wall <laughs> surfing with the alien. And they just went to town with this. And one of their customers was the guy who was writing for, I guess, who started writing up, uh, writing for the um, the series. And he, uh, I don't know his name. I asked you about that was before. Was it Starlin at the time? Um, who would it have been? But he was living in uh, Oakland, Lawrence? I think. Um, Oakland or, or in Berkeley. So mm-hmm. he wanders into the store and sees his character and, and he's like, well, what's this all about? How come I don't know about this guy, you know? Who's this Italian singer, you know? <laughs> Satriani, whatever. So um, uh, anyway, uh, eventually I was told that because of that experience, he put my name into issue number 13. That's the one I have, I guess, the, the, the revival issue 13. And it's just a short mention about the world trouble in the world of Satriani. Ah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, over the years, have you get do fans give you Silver Surfer? Like, yes, yeah. I, I would imagine. What do you, what's the some of the stuff you've gotten? I keep getting the all the commemorative issues uh-huh. over and over again, uh, and uh, also um, my son recently found for me an original issue. I forget the the number of the issue. But yeah, that's great. Uh, it's really cool to have a nice little collection. We got a couple minutes left. We want to talk about this too. Oh, yeah. You brought some cool things to talk about. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on that um, fits in with this whole retrospective. I've spent almost two years uh, looking backwards, which is not something I love to do. <laughs> but uh, author Jake Brown came to me about writing a book, and uh, the, the guys at Legacy came to me with this idea independently about doing a box set. It took so long to really uh, get both of these things uh, finished properly, uh, but it was really a blessing in the end for two reasons. We were able to capitalize on the length of time to remaster the entire catalog. Um, and in 96K, 24-bit, as those little uh, uh, USB uh, drives you're holding right there um, hold, or it for the traditional uh, box set with all the studio albums, and it also gave us time to change the book focus from being an interview book about the sessions behind each record to being more of a biography and then uh, a first person, uh, me basically telling the story about uh, each record, how the songs were done, um, and uh, who played on them. And there's all the interviews in there from you know, Sammy Hagar and Steve I and Kirk Hammond, everyone who was involved somehow with me is interviewed about all, all those times, uh, saying all sorts of stuff, even stuff I was totally unaware of, <laughs> and their impressions of how I was working and, and how we got these records done. Uh, the book's got a forward by Brian May. He was very gracious to to uh, uh, give his take on, on the whole career. Uh, so they come out together now, which is really kind of cool. We hadn't planned it. And as you were, you were just holding the head, which is which is a great idea that came from the guys at Legacy, because um, we were we were thinking it would be great if we're going to do a box set to offer some kind of high res version of it. Um, I don't know who at their office came up with the idea for a chrome head, but it's, it's awesome. yeah, for fans listening, it's a chrome like it, it looks exactly like you a tiny like statue kind of. Yeah, it's a bust basically. Yeah, yeah a little little what is that? A six inch bust yep. of, of me. Um, and it's got uh, with a pair of sunglasses, um, and you pull out the sunglasses, and there are two USB drives in there, and they hold the 96K files. That's so awesome. And so you get to hear the stuff um, when we heard it mastered for the last time in the you know multi-million dollar mastering room. 
before it got turned into a horrible MP3 or, <laughs> or some crunchy CD in some country, you know. Uh, you know, a lot of the records were uh, produced before there were CDs, and so we had to ride that wave between cassettes and the demise of the LPs, the horrible first uh, and second generation CDs, all the mastering wars over the last two decades, you know, where people have been making records with the smaller and smaller dynamic range just mm. so that you could hit the radio and TV and earbuds louder and louder. Mm. Um, it's a bit of a problem with context, you know. I'm, I'm not sh sure if there's a parallel with comics, but if you think back to a day when the only time that someone would read a comic book would be the way I'm doing it now, I'm opening up the page, right? Then all of a sudden, this artwork and the stories would be told in a digital way. They would be either on television, that had to be changed, then it would be on a computer, now it's on mobile devices, and people can manipulate it once they have it in digital form. So it changes the way that you ultimately produce it because of, of the context. Well, music went through being something that you, you listened to when you were standing in front of your record player or coming through a radio in your car, uh, and it, it went through this explosion of context where now it's, it's in every device, every electronic device, it's available on every television, in any moving device that you're in, it's beamed at you in the street. I mean, it's just everywhere. Right. So from an audiophile's point of view, it's a nightmare because you cannot properly master a record for every context, <laughs> you know, a big room and a small room. They're just not going to work the same. Mm. You know, in an orchestra, they tune pianos differently depending on how big the concert hall is. So it's for recorded music, there's no time to retune, you know. <laughs> uh, so what uh, my co-producer, engineer, uh, and longtime friend John Cunaberti did with this package was he remastered everything with an audiophile sensibility and also with the sensibility that if you were going to sit down and listen to CD1 and CD4 and CD10 and go back and forth, that it would be a pleasurable and exciting listening experience, not one that would have you scratching your head going, how come that record's dark and that one's bright, <laughs> that one's loud, that one's quiet, you yeah. know what I mean? And, and what it meant was actually was opening it up, making it less compressed, not worrying about the records being commercially competitive, which is the, the buzzword they used to use at mastering houses when they would crunch and compress music. It's a whole industry <laughs> yeah, I don't know much about. It's fascinating. <laughs> um, yeah. That's awesome. Where can fans get these? Okay, you can get anything, uh, obviously, associated with this package, uh, the head, the CDs, the book, uh, all together, signed, not signed, uh, if you go to Satriani.com, of course, uh, and if you go to LegacySony.com, but of course it's all available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and any place that's got a .com after it, I think, probably has a link yeah. where you can get it. So uh, that's the great thing about the Internet is every address is the same distance away. <laughs> and you're also on Facebook, Twitter. Facebook, Twitter, yeah. You can find me everywhere, unfortunately. There is no <laughs> privacy. I'm sure there's a camera in this room, too. Probably. Yeah, well, there's definitely a microphone somewhere in here. Uh, and, and it's actually called the Complete Studio Recording. So when you guys are searching for it, that's how you'll find it. That's right. It's not. We decided to... to take all of the live stuff, which is, there's a huge amount of live stuff, the G3 recordings and things like that, and we've pushed that to some other day. That is another <laughs> project altogether. So this is just the studio albums, 
uh, going all the way back to the very first one, not of this earth. And you said this took two years? Just about. About two years? Okay, so take a breath and then get ready for the, <laughs> the, the long one. haul for all the, the live ones. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we just um, finished last week sending all the boxes back to Iron Mountain, our storage facility. And uh, I think it was over, what was it, 180 boxes, but we, we were pretty good cleaning it up. But um, there was an enormous amount of uh, two-inch tape boxes, one-inch tape boxes, you know, all the, the, in the days when it was very, very physical to make records and getting through all of it. And it's very much like, I explained to people, it's very much like a TV show. You know, when a TV show is over, they want to turn the lights off and send everybody that's part of a union home as soon as possible. <laughs> so the place just like shuts down, and you always wonder, well, where's the where are the tapes? You know, it's like who's in charge? And uh, music is very much the same way. When the end of the project comes, usually people are out of money, out of time, maybe slightly embarrassed and burnt out. <laughs> and so there's always that question, like where are those tapes and what's exactly on them? And did somebody yeah. properly write? And so the archiving process uh, and the unarchiving is. It's uh, tedious, but very necessary to do. But we've recently done that work, and, and John did most of the work. Uh, so that means that that live sort of box set um, will be much easier to do. It will take two years nice. to do. So, Very cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on yeah, and, and visiting us here. It's a real thrill, i got to say, walking through there. <laughs> it's such a serious office. You, know? oh, you can yeah. tell there's a lot of business here, but the, it's like overkill visual. It's like the coolest stuff everywhere you turn. There's, <laughs> there's stuff you want to walk up to and just stare at for a couple of minutes, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, go and, and enjoy it. Uh, you finish up the tour. Thank you, Joe. Great. Thank you very Thank much. You. This is Marvel, your universe.